0: December 14th, 2021. It is a Tuesday. And I've got a little something different, just like always, to talk about. And I have two articles I'm going to reference, one in Publishers Weekly, the other one at TheDailyWire.com. But first of all, before we get into that, I want to talk about Sunday afternoon and my children, not all of them, but four out of the seven of them, playing a piano recital. Our children just this year started up piano lessons, or I should say that our sons, Eli and Daniel and Enoch and our daughter Evelyn, just started piano lessons. And Krista Arakayos is doing a fine job. She's patient with them she's sweet, and they are learning how to play piano. And part of the process of learning how to play piano is learning how to perform. And you're going to learn these pieces and then you're going to play them for your family and friends and other people. And that will help to inspire you and to drive you to do your best, to really practice, to really apply yourself. And growing up, myself, the son of a piano teacher. My mother was a a very good piano teacher herself. I attended a lot of piano recitals, pretty much every single piano recital. In fact, I can't think of a single piano recital that I didn't go to when I was growing up. If my mother was throwing it, I was there. In fact, I was helping to put it on and get everything ready and all that kind of thing. But what's neat about piano recitals is that As the kids are playing, they are also hearing their peers play. And when they watch and hear their peers play their pieces, that can also inspire them to do their best. It can drive a certain competitiveness or they might say, hey, that really is a pretty piece of music there. I think I'd like to play that too. I like that she's playing that. I'd like to play that too. I like that he's playing that. I'd like to play that too. Or if they can do it, I can do it. Maybe that was a little more of a challenge than I felt up to until I heard someone else my age or around my age tackle it, and now I feel like I want to tackle it too. So my kiddos, four of our kiddos, they played a piano recital, and my brother and his family and my dad, they came and then, there were a number of other people that we knew who also take piano lessons or their children take piano lessons from the Arachios, uh from Krista Arachios. Uh, I shouldn't say the Archaioses, but I, I'm i used to being part of the mix. You know, if there was a whole big family that was taking lessons while certain kids were not playing music or practicing their music or having their lesson, they might hang out with my brother and I. And so we got to know a lot of kids that way that helped with socializing and whatnot. But Krista uh, taught piano to our kiddos and also to a number of other kiddos who were playing for this recital this past Sunday. And it was so funny And it was so surreal because, like I said, it's been a long time since I've been to a recital, but I've been to quite a few. And it's funny how the more things change, the more they stay the same, even though we are 15, 20 years down the line since I was part of these things, and helping my mom to throw these things, put them on and clean up after them and all that It's remarkable to me how little has really changed. You know, children are children. The music is the music. The piano hasn't changed. Maybe certain pieces are more popular, but actually there's some pieces that kids still want to play, uh, with it being Christmas. Obviously kids want to play Christmas music, but you have certain themes that are consistent, and there's certain musical pieces or types of music that teenage girls seem to prefer to play, and you usually don't have as many teenage boys playing at a piano recital, especially as they get older. You might have 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old girls still wanting to take piano lessons. But if you have 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old boys, usually they've kind of dropped off one by one as they get older. At least that was my experience. That's what I've seen. I don't entirely know why that is, but it, but it is. But I'm listening to all of this, and I'm watching my kiddos, and I was so amused. I thought they did a fine job. Enoch got up there, took his bow, and he started playing, and then he looked out at the audience and just gave his big Bumble the Abominable Snowman grin and got distracted for just a second. He wasn't afraid of the audience, but he was definitely distracted by the audience. You could say that, because he just flat out forgot what he was doing. <laughs> he was just, just smiling at all of us. And then he gets a little bit of a reminder and gets back on task, and he plays a little bit more. And, and then he looks back at the crowd again, about back at the audience, and smiles again. And that happened a couple of times, and then he finished his and he was done. And then, dear sweet Evelyn, she was right after him, and she comes up, and she bowed beautifully, and she was wearing a dress that my wife had made that I think she looked lovely in, and she proceeds to play, and she did the same thing that Enoch did, where she's playing, and then she's looking out at everyone, and she's smiling very confidently, but also, again, very distractedly. She was distracted by the fact that everybody is watching and listening. And so she kind of forgot where she was a little bit as well. And it's funny to me because some kids are distracted by their nerves, distracted by how afraid they are of playing in front of everyone. And then other kids like my kiddos, my at least my two youngest kiddos in this context, were distracted by enjoying the attention apparently. But Daniel... Played his piece very well. He takes it very seriously. He loves playing piano. He is so excited about learning piano. He wants to learn Pirates of the Caribbean and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. He wants to learn how to play the theme music to some really epic movies. And I think that's super cool. I think it's very cool. And if he sticks with it, there's no reason why he can't be a very accomplished pianist. But Eli got up there. And he was taking it very seriously too. He's a very serious young man. And he did his bow and he proceeded to sit down and play a little bit and made a mistake and grimaced. And uh, you could visibly see him blush because he does take it so seriously. Making a mistake is just the worst. He hates making a mistake, especially in front of everybody. But there again, that's a good thing. To learn how to handle and so we talked about it with him on the way home that hey if you make a mistake welcome to the human race but how you handle making a mistake you can smooth over what people are going to be left remembering if you draw attention to the mistake that you made then that becomes the story But if you gracefully recover and just carry on and play the rest of it and don't let it get under your skin, then actually that's what people are going to remember. It's not remarkable to make mistakes. What distinguishes us is how we recover, how we respond when we make a mistake. That makes all the difference. And getting to practice doing that and go through and rehearse and practically see how that works and how that is accomplished is a very, very valuable opportunity. I would say far more valuable than whether we learn how to play piano, learning how to recover from a mistake, how to focus, how to pay attention, how to stay on task, all of those things are far, far more important than the piano itself. But in any event, alas, I digress, 10 minutes in. And yet, I think this can be tied in with the main thing I want to talk about in this episode, which is this tendency in recent years to reimagine fairy tales and classic children's stories towards the end of social justice, towards the end of challenging our conception of gender and sexuality and class, and race, and nationality, and everything, really everything. Just like the adults are when they talk amongst themselves and when they create content for adults, just like they are trying to find ways to deconstruct Western civilization for the adults in the room, when those same adults or their friends, their buddies tackle children's content, they are all the more earnestly, all the more eagerly, and all the more subtly trying to deconstruct Western civilization. When I say Western civilization, by the way, I mean our Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman roots. Western civilization is built on the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews and the Christians. And however secular we get, we do not have a culture to call home if we abandon or even destroy those roots, that intellectual tradition, that cultural heritage. We do not have a home anymore. If we're too good at the deconstruction piece, we're going to find that we've deconstructed ourselves. And deconstructing yourself, let's just take this very, very literally and talk about this in very, very physical terms. What happens if you deconstruct yourself? You die. Simply, quite simply. To put it very bluntly and not poetically at all, you die. You die. If I were to make a mistake at work, and there was a gas leak, and then I introduced a spark, and the air-to-fuel mixture was just right, and a cloud had built up, and an explosion happened, and the whole facility went up in flames, and things were blowing up left and right all around me. If I were to do that, God forbid, by accident, because I certainly would never do it on purpose. If I were in the midst of the explosion and everything were blowing up, Left, right, above, below, around me, if I were deconstructed by such explosions, and oh, look, I have an arm over there, half of my torso's over there, and I've got a leg over here, like the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. That's you all over. That deconstruction would kill me. That would be the end of me. That would be the death of me. So it riddled me this. How is it that we suppose deconstructing our culture is going to produce a different result? When you deconstruct a person, you kill them. But if you deconstruct a culture, what happens? The same thing. You kill it. And to be clear too, this is not analysis that is being performed. When someone tackles Sleeping Beauty and rewrites it to make it a story about two lesbian lovers and female empowerment, they are not analyzing Western tradition. They're not analyzing our Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian values. They're trying to dissect them and work against them and kill them by any means necessary. That's the kind of deconstruction that they're engaging in. A dissection, which at the end results in the death of the subject. That is the idea. That is not a bug. That is a feature. That is the idea. We have to destroy these things because they stand in the way of us and becoming godlike. And that's really what it boils down to. The reason why the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews and the Christians have prevailed over every non-Western culture we've come into contact with, the reason why our civilization has endured and triumphed and dominated is because, as Augustine of Hippo writes in The City of God, whether accidentally, sometimes, or very, very intentionally and on principle, Western tradition has adhered more perfectly not perfectly, but more perfectly, to God's standard of right conduct. Put another way, God created the universe with certain rules. He created order. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. That is reason number one for the incompatibility of theistic evolution with Christian life and thought. God did not create everything over millions and millions and millions of years of death and dying as if he couldn't get it on the first try. No, death and dying are part of our reality now because of the entrance of sin. Because the serpent tempted the woman who gave to her husband and her husband did eat when God had said, don't. The serpent in the garden was the first deconstructionist. (laughs) Hath God really said? Did God really say? Well, yeah, actually, that wasn't an honest question any more than the deconstructionists who are tackling classic fairy tales are honestly asking the question. They're not honestly asking the question. They're asking the question as a way of saying no, as a way of contradicting, as a way of fighting against as a way of resisting, as a way of trying to destroy. What the serpent really meant was, I want you to disobey God, because I'm at war with God. And if you disobey God, that'll hurt him in some way. That'll thwart his plans in some way. That'll get you on my side in some way. And once you're on my side, maybe together we can take him. That's what the serpent was doing. And that's what the reimaginers of these fairy tales are doing as well i'll read a selection for you i can't read the whole thing with the time that i have but a selection from this article in publishers weekly the article is by puja makajani from october 15th 2021 twice told tales for teens it's all about Stories that are getting a makeover and getting an update and getting revised, and they're being brought up to date, up to the times. Skipping on down to the section with the heading of Tale as Old as Time, the author of this article writes, Fairy tales are getting a makeover too. In Briarheart, Little Brown Out Now, Mercedes Lackey offers a fresh feminist retelling of Sleeping Beauty in her story of sisterly love rather than romantic love. Sila Panin also refashions Beauty and the Beast into a story about siblings in Stalking Shadows. Rebecca Kim Wells queers her source text in Briar Girls. In this adaptation of Sleeping Beauty, Lena, who is cursed, and Miranda who is on a quest to wake a sleeping princess in order to liberate her city from its tyrannical ruler, join forces and wits on a journey of adventure and self-discovery. Well's straightforward handling of bisexual Lena's sex-positive attitude is a breath of fresh air, PW's review said. Marissa Meyer combines horror and Rumpelstiltskin in Gilded, the first in a duology. In it, the cursed Miller's daughter teams up with a ghost, thwart the evil king. Young women are often at the center of these stories, including in two forthcoming Putnam titles, says Jane Klonsky, President and Publisher of Putnam Books for Young Readers and Razorbill Books. The Bone Spindle by Leslie Vetter and Cinder and Glass by Melissa de la Cruz. We're calling The Bone Spindle Sleeping Beauty meets Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, she explains. It's this very female forward story. Briar Rose is a prince under a sleeping spell, and Fi is smart, brave, a bit snarky, and she has to save the prince. Fi also has an adventuring partner who is gay. These two women have scenes in which they are escaping by the seat of their pants and helping each other through things, and the stakes are high. Too often, those kinds of scenes had been reserved for men and boys. Cinder and Glass, a retelling of Cinderella set in the royal cart of Versailles, serves as a commentary on class and gender. Quote, it doesn't have the ending of the Cinderella tale that I grew up knowing, Klonsky says. In some retellings, and certainly in the Disney version, Cinderella is kind to the point of naivety. In Mel's story, Cendrillon is her own person and has all the hallmarks of an authentic young woman she is not afraid to call out someone for bad behavior. She finds a way to be true to who she is and what she wants without being cruel to others. And that stands in stark contrast to other characters in the story, which I think is true to the source. It reads like the fairy tale we know, but also has a healthy dose of feminism. Fairy tales are often a go-to for gatekeepers, such as parents, teachers, and librarians, Klonsky adds. They're sort of imprinted on our DNA, she adds. And it's really exciting to revisit them through the lens of coming of age and young adulthood because adolescence is filled with scary and out-of-control moments. And so are fairy tales. That, my friends, is tragic. Quite simply. That is tragic. Let me interpret. Let me sum up. No, wait, that is too much. Let me sum up. Allow me to explain. As uh, Inigo Montoya would say, fairy tales are something we're used to, and parents, she says, as gatekeepers, in addition to teachers and librarians, parents are the Gatekeepers who will give their young children, their teenagers, fairy tales, especially dressed up, modernized, revised, remixed, updated, progressive fairy tales, because they're assuming certain things are going to be part of the experience. From having read those stories themselves, having watched those movies themselves growing up, they're familiar with Cinderella. There's some. They're, they're familiar with Snow White. They're familiar with Rapunzel. They're familiar with these stories, and so their young daughter, their ten-year-old, eleven-year-old, twelve-year-old daughter wants to read something, and it's Christmas time, and Mom and Dad say, "Oh, this looks interesting." Yeah, I'll get my daughter this here, sweetie. Here's an updated version of Sleeping Beauty. That looks interesting. And the publishers and the authors and the deconstructionists know that if they can infuse their critical theory doctrine, if they can infuse their LGBTQ plus ideas, their feminist ideas into this content, the content will carry these attitudes and these ways of thinking to these children. And the parents will be a part of it. The parents will help to indoctrinate their own children. It's like mixing in poison with somebody's food. It's awful. Quite frankly, it's awful. Now you could say, oh, Garrett, I think you're being a little bit dramatic about this. Tell you what the folks who are reimagining these fairy tales they believe that it's very very important to the psychological development of young girls to believe these things and to get these ideas and these attitudes via these fairy tales you can be strong you can be the hero of your own story you can be whoever you feel like being you can love whoever you feel like loving and when we say love We mean have sex with, have a romantic love with whoever you want to, or you can have romantic love with nobody. That's all right, too. That's okay. Let's steer away from romantic love because the author has some unresolved issues with men, at best. Let's give you this story. But wait a second. What if that was the whole idea of the fairy tales all along? But the way they were written before was very intentional in trying to communicate and transmit Christian values or a truer approximation of reality. What if as you're tinkering with these things, what you're really doing is shaking your fist at God's created order? What if? What if this is just deconstruction? And what if it is going to have the same effect on our hearts and minds that it would on our bodies. If our bodies were being deconstructed, blown bit from bit, all over the place, our hearts and our minds, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, intellectually, spiritually, are being ripped into pieces. Also, suppose these authors are right, because these authors happen to believe that it's very important to have these ideas and attitudes transmitted to young girls, to young children, teenagers, teenage boys and girls, primarily girls, which is funny in a way because the serpent went after Eve first. Eve was the one who was deceived and then Adam, who should have been a better leader, protector, servant of his wife goes along, goes along to get along. Oh, sure. Shrug. God's not here. He won't know. What's the big deal? She seems fine. And now here we are. (laughs) Thousands of years later. What if making feminist themes the new highest virtue of all these stories is actually destroying femininity in these young girls. What if making Sleeping Beauty into a story about some effeminate prince who needs to be rescued by a couple of girls actually is doing incredible damage not just to young girls but also to young boys? What if you're taking something away in your redistribution of power, roles, reversal of roles, or reversal of the traditional story here? What if you're actually harming boys? Has that thought occurred to any of these feminist writers, publishers, publishing companies, reviewers? What if you're actually harming boys in all the ways that you were saying girls have been harmed by these tropes and these stereotypes and these traditions, the traditional view of femininity. What if you're actually harming girls by telling them that there's something wrong and objectionable about traditional femininity? I would say you are, you are harming girls, you are harming boys. Amanda Harding writes for TheDailyWire.com, an article yesterday, Disney's Snow White remake will update classic story with a stronger narrative, the lead actress says. Rachel Zegler is going to be playing the lead. She will be Snow White. She's quoted as saying, There's not much I can say about it besides the fact that Snow White has constantly been criticized, even though she's the original Disney princess and we love her so much, but criticized for existing solely for a prince, existing solely to be rescued, the actress explained. I think that our director, Mark Webb, and everyone who's working on this film has really taken her narrative and turned it into something that's a lot stronger. And I'm very, very excited to be able to bring that to life. Just consider that quote, and I'll put a link in the podcast description. You can go read the full article, unless it's behind the paywall. But if it is behind the paywall, I would recommend getting a subscription to Daily Wire. It's worth it. They have a lot of really good content on there. But take just this quote from Rachel Zegler. For one, I never grew up watching Snow White thinking to myself, She exists solely for the prince to be rescued by the prince. I never thought that. But quite frankly, what else is the prince supposed to do? What else is the prince supposed to do if he's not supposed to be rescuing? There's no place for the prince in the story as it is told. If you object to that, then you actually just don't like the story of Snow White, period pick another story come up with a new story instead of ruining old stories how about that but that's par for the course for the deconstructionists they don't create new things they just ruin old things you don't create a better fairy tale you just ruined the old one you just demonstrated actually how great the original was by one demonstrating that you can't come up with a better one and two tinkering a few of the aspects, some of the dynamics. And now by contrast, we realize how important those dynamics were. I would say you're going to take the story of Snow White and turn it into something that's a lot stronger. Why? right? Why? Why is it stronger in your view? To upend the idea that Snow White needs to be rescued by the prince in the story of Snow White. She's beautiful. You're going to upend that as well? Is that weak? Is it weak that Snow White is beautiful in the story of Snow White? And that her enemy hates her for being more beautiful? Is jealous of her for being more beautiful? You don't understand the story of Snow White. You just don't. I could be wrong. This is my take on Snow White. Snow White is a story about a young woman who, because she is more beautiful than the older woman in her life, who should be a kind of caretaker for her, who should be nurturing her, who should be building her up. Because the young woman is more beautiful than the older woman. The older woman wants to poison the young woman. She sees her as a rival. She sees her as competition and she wants to destroy her. As my grandpa mullet would say and did say when we were watching Anne of Green Gables once upon a time about a decade ago, and a certain very unpleasant sort of gal made her debut in the scene, she's what back in my day we would have called a bitch. A poisoned apple, in this case, is a metaphor. The poison apple is not a poison apple. The poison apple is mean, vicious, cruel, hurtful, untrue comments designed to destroy the confidence and grace and beauty of the younger woman. The older woman wants to destroy the younger woman who she sees as competition. And so she's saying awful things in real life. This happens over and over and over again. Many a man has married his Snow White and come to find out she's got long-standing issues because her mother used to say the worst, most awful, hurtful, cutting things because this man's wife was beautiful and happy and vivacious and sweet and innocent. And feminine. And her mother felt threatened. Her mother decided rather than celebrating that her daughter was all of these things, was lovely and beautiful and wonderful, she was going to take the pep out of her step. And so many a man has married a young woman only to find out that she's got some serious issues with regards to confidence. Because of the things that her mother told her because of the nasty, mean, awful, hurtful things that her mother told her. And there's a sense in which it's a poisoned apple that causes her true self to lie dormant. She hides it. She doesn't want to be at odds with her mother. She doesn't want to have her mother destroy her and tear her apart and take her down a notch every time she's feeling free and happy and beautiful she falls asleep on the inside and many a husband many a husband has had to try and rescue his wife from that deep internal sleep of the soul because an older woman once upon a time usually the mother did some real damage no sweetie no 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 your cooking is delicious no, I don't, I don't mind how you fold towels. How you fold towels is just fine. Thank you for folding the towels. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's, don't, no, don't worry about it. I don't care what your mother said. No, sweetie, you look wonderful. You look beautiful. I love your hair that way. You have great fashion sense. No, no, you're, you're fine. No, how are you really feeling, right? Those are the kinds of conversations that the real life Snow White and Prince Charming have to have. You want to talk about feminism, women's empowerment, older women feeling threatened by the femininity of younger women. That's what Snow White is about. Destroying the beauty of Snow White. Case in point, you are are the evil stepmother, actually, you authors who are reimagining these stories. You are the very villain that... So many of these fairy tales were warning about, and you're doing it right now. No, you need to be strong like I am. Well, yeah, but you're also ugly. You're also ugly, and not very feminine, because you're trying so hard to beat the men at their own game that you've given up on your femininity. Now, don't don't corrupt these girls. Don't corrupt those young women what could be stronger than men embracing God's design for masculinity and women embracing God's design for femininity? What could be stronger than that? You think you're making it stronger. You're actually making it extremely neurotic, self-obsessed, self-absorbed, selfish, short-sighted, trite, cheap. We can do better than that. And again, again, the original stories were themselves vehicles for shaping values, for telling a morality play, for teaching important lessons about life. Those important lessons about life might have a limited utility and a limited usefulness, but by golly, these reimaginings of every story where the woman has to be ultra competent, flawlessly smart ultra capable. She's actually the one saving all of the men. The men, meanwhile, are bungling and bumbling and clumsily doing stupid things left and right and accidentally getting it right sometimes, but only if the girl comes in and figures it out for them. Those stories are doing exactly what the villains in the traditional fairy tales always tried to do. They always read any Watch any classic fairy tale before our present age and watch the villain try to get inside the head of the hero and take him down. You can't do it. You're worthless. You think you can oppose me. The hero comes to save Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella or Snow White or Jasmine or Pride Rock or whatever. Fill in the blank. Young men need to not let these villains who are destroying these classic stories get in their heads. And parents, you are the gatekeepers. Publishers Weekly is right. You are the gatekeepers. You're the go-to gatekeepers. Bar the gate against this trash. I gotta leave it there, though. Speaking of being the hero, riding off to the sunset, I need to go drive into the sunrise and get to work.